morning, everyone. Uh, today, we're reading from Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 50. What? Okay. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through the places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much for reading, and as I said earlier, it's a real joy to, to be here. Thank you so much for having us. It's, it's great to be with you, and as we come to God's Word, let's pray again for His help. Heavenly Father, we, we see in this passage that our default position is that we suppress the truth, and we won't listen to the evidence, and we know that we're like that. Pray that you'd help us very much as we come to these verses now. Work in us by your Spirit. Open our spiritual eyes that we might hear, but also understand and obey. Amen. Evidence is very important. We see that in all areas of life. If someone's thinking about investing in a company, then they want to check that that company is a safe investment. If someone's thinking about buying a house or a flat, then they want to make sure that it's structurally sound. If two people are going out, a boy and a girl, then 
they want evidence that the other person is loving and committed and not too weird before they start talking about marriage. Evidence is very important and it's foolhardy to make a big decision in life without first investigating first, speaking to other people, doing the reviews, doing the due diligence. Of course, exactly the same is true for Christianity. Evidence is very important and it's not a case of us just taking a leap of faith, leaving our brains by the door. No, it's important for us to engage our minds. But that's very true for someone who's perhaps investigating Christianity for the first time. They need to do the due diligence. They need to read the Bible for themselves, speak to other Christians, come to church, check it out. Now, it's not that Christianity is like a mathematical formula. No, it's a relationship with the living God, not a science experiment. So we can't prove it mathematically, but it is something where we very much need to engage our minds. The same is true for someone who's a Christian. It's important that we look at the evidence day by day as we come to God's Word. You may, re you may remember the story of the Berean Christians in the book of Acts. We're told that Paul and, and Silas were in Thessalonica. They were chased out of Thessalonica, handed out of Thessalonica, and then they went on to the, the next town, which was Berea. And we're told that the, Berean, the Bereans were much more noble. And day by day, they would examine the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was actually true. That's why so many Bible colleges are called Berean Bible College. And we need to be just like that, like the Bereans, day by day, looking at the Holy Scriptures and saying, well, what does this mean? And how does it affect my life? We need to be people who look at the evidence. But the, the danger is to think, well, that we can just look at the evidence objectively and absolutely understand it. And we can't do that because we all come with our own biases, with our own worldviews and, and hang-ups. But more than that, we all come with our own sin. But the Bible tells us that our default position is to suppress the truth rather than looking at it objectively and accepting it. Now, that's what we see in today's passage. Pharisees are experts in Scripture, but they suppress the truth and they won't listen to what Jesus is saying. We're going to divide our passage up into three different sections. And first we see a rebellious people. A rebellious people. Look with me at verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now we think to ourselves, isn't this a reasonable request? Jesus is making big claims about himself. Isn't it quite reasonable that they should ask for a bit of evidence, a sign? The thing is, is that, as you've probably seen over the last few weeks, the Pharisees have had sign after sign after sign. They've heard Jesus' teaching. They've seen him perform, perform astonishing miracles. In just the, the previous passage, Jesus cast a demon out of a man and healed his sight. He couldn't speak. He was mute. And Jesus made him be able to speak. Pharisees accused him of, of Satanism. It was illogical and perverse. So that's why Jesus says here, in quite a harsh way, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Now the adultery that he's talking about here is spiritual adultery. God's people, the, the people of Israel, were described as his bride. But time and again, they, they'd been unfaithful. They'd, they'd gone their own way. And exactly the same thing was true for the Pharisees. So, so Jesus is saying, look, you're not going to get sign after sign for me. I'm not a performing monkey. I'm not going to sort of dance to your tune. I'm not going to jump through your hoops. You're not just going to get all of this evidence sign after sign. 
because you're rebellious. You will get one more sign, though, and that is the sign of Jonah. Now, you probably remember the story of Jonah. Jonah was a rather reluctant prophet. God told him to go to the, the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, a very cruel and rebellious, hard-hearted nation. In the end, they were the nation which destroyed Israel. So Jonah didn't really want to go there. So instead of heading, heading to Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq, he started to go in the other direction. He hopped on a boat, and he headed in the direction of, of Spain. Now, you, you can't run away from God. So the Lord sent a storm, and it looked like the boat was going to capsize, and everyone was going to drown. Now, Jonah knew that it was his fault. So he said to the poor sailors, toss me overboard. And they were rather reluctant, but eventually they complied with his request. But even as Jonah was sinking in the ocean, he couldn't escape from the Lord. God sent a big fish, which swallowed him up. And he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So eventually it spat him out onto dry, dry ground. And you can imagine Jonah wiping the, the fish slime off his face and thinking, maybe I should go to Nineveh after all. And so he headed off to Nineveh. Then he preached the good news that there's salvation if we repent. And he, he also brought this sign that God had effectively brought him back from the dead to give the Ninevites one last chance. Listen to me. Listen to the gospel. Otherwise, you're destroyed. So the sign of Jonah is a, a sign of the resurrection. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, essentially brought back from the dead. He was, in a way, resurrected. So to Jesus Christ. Jesus died and he was in the ground, in the grave, for three days and three nights. If you're thinking, well, wasn't he just two nights, actually? Well, the way that the Jews counted the days and the nights is that if you were even a part of a day, well, then that counted as, as both a day and a night. So Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights, and then he rose, the resurrection. Now, the resurrection is the key sign of, of Christianity, because it proves to us clearly who Jesus really is, that he's declared with power to be the Son of God through his resurrection from the dead. It shows us clearly who Jesus is, and it shows us clearly why Jesus came, not primarily to just preach or to heal or to reach out to the poor, but to pay the penalty for sin and to bring us salvation, life after death. The resurrection is, is the key sign, who Jesus is and why he came. If the resurrection isn't true, if Jesus rotted in the grave, well, Christianity is meaningless. But if Jesus rose again, then it is true. And we should listen to the message, and we should certainly repent. And that's what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees. Like, listen to my message, look at the sign, and then repent. But, but he knew that they, wouldn't, they weren't going to do that. And that's why he says, on that final day, that the day of judgment, the men of Nineveh and the, the queen of the south, will they be able to stand up and condemn you? See, the people of, of Nineveh, Nineveh, remember, they'd heard the message of Jonah, and they'd heard about that sign, but now one far greater than Jonah was here. And so on, on the day of final judgment, they'd be able to say to the Pharisees, look, we listened to Jonah, but you didn't even listen to Jesus. And he gives another example, the queen of the south, also known as the queen of Sheba. She just heard the rumors of Solomon. And she trekked all the way from what was probably modern-day Yemen, perhaps on the back of a camel, not the most comfortable of journeys. 
in order to sit at Solomon's feet and listen to his words, so she could stand up on the, the day of final judgment and say, look, I listened to Solomon, but you wouldn't even listen to Jesus. It shows the, the hard-hearted, the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. And it shows us what sin is really like. Sin is turning from the living God in rebellion and not listening to him, and instead going our own way, which is a dark way. The interesting thing here is the kind of people that Jesus is, is taking a shot at. You see, he's not talking primarily about people out there who we think might be so very wicked. I don't know, the, the warlords or the, the gangsters, the drug smugglers. He's not really talking about people like that. He's talking about people who've heard the good news, people who, who might look religious, but people who are not listening. Perhaps the, 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 perhaps the person who's who's thinking about Christianity. They've been to church. They've read parts of the Bible. Maybe they've read some Christian books. They understand. They keep asking all of these different questions. What about science? What about evolution? What about suffering? What about other religions? Those are all very good and reasonable questions. But if they keep on coming up again and again, well, maybe it's just a smokescreen for rebellion. Or how about people who've got an outward veneer of religiosity? They look like Christians, but there's issues. Maybe they're rejecting key Christian truths. So, for instance, I know a man on the island who's a Christian minister, but he denies the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not making this up. He's got a theological degree. He preaches sermons probably nearly every week, but he's denying that key Christian truth it's possible to look like a Christian, but to not take Jesus' words seriously, to not agree to the authority of Scripture, to reject what Jesus is saying on ethical issues like homosexuality, not, not taking Jesus' words seriously. And it's possible to, to look like a Christian and agree to keep Christian truths, but in our hearts, actually never to have done business with Jesus. It's possible to come to church, to know the songs, to say the creed, say the confession, but deep down inside to still be rebellious, not listening to Jesus' words, not taking him seriously. It's possible to look like a Christian on the outside, but not to be. But even if we are Christians, even if we have given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, even if we have that indwelling Holy Spirit, well, all of us still have that rebellious nature where in some things we're not really listening to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're trying to keep him at arm's length, and that produces all kinds of visible issues. That envy, that anger, that wrong way of living, maybe falling into sexual sin, all of those kinds of issues, that comes from a refusal to take Jesus' words seriously and from a deeper issue, which is a heart issue. That's the second point that we see a defective heart, a defective heart. Now, Jesus tells this rather curious story, I think, a parable about a demon. So this demon is, is cast out of this man, and he, he wanders through arid places, that's the desert, and he, he can't find anyone else to possess. So he thinks, well, what about this person I was possessing before? Maybe I'll go back there. He finds the man, and, well, there's no one else in there, so he thinks, well, I could get some of my friends. We can all live in there together. Now, I, I take that this is a rather curious parable for us, and Sometimes secular society tries to make out that there's no such thing or as demons or forces of evil. The Bible is very clear. 
that there is. There are such things as demons. Demons can possess a person, but demons can't possess a Christian. And I think that that's the main point of this parable. It's not so much that we need to take it literalistically about demons and, and exorcism. The point is what's in our heart. Okay, how do you keep a, a demon out of a person's heart? How do you keep the forces of darkness out of a person's heart? Well, you put in God's love and God's truth and God's Holy Spirit. Picture it like this. Imagine if you're in a very advanced science laboratory. You've got all of the equipment that you can think of in the whole world. And someone says to you, well, I've got this jar over here. Could you please get all of the air out of it? But you might be able to come up with all kinds of results, maybe using a vacuum or lasers or, or dry ice or plasma, magnetic fields. But the simple answer is just fill her up. Fill her up with water, and then all of the air goes out. It's the same for a person. How do you keep those forces of darkness out? Fill her up with God's love, God's truth, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's why Jesus is, is criticizing the nation of Israel here, I think. He applies it first to the nation. You see, Jesus, in a way, he's come to clear up. He's come to sweep the house clean. He's come to cast out the demons, to, to heal the people who, who are sick. He's preached the good news. He's ushered in the kingdom of God. He's cleaned up the house. The question is, is are people listening? Well, a few people listen to the message. But for the most part, the people of Israel did not listen. They did not fill up their hearts with God's goodness, and so it won't be long before they become even harder in their hearts, and, and things go back to what they were like before, and even worse. Jesus applies it to the nation, but it applies to individuals too. It's possible to hear the gospel, and to, to make an external, maybe a sort of superficial acceptance of that good news, but one's heart, to, to not be full of God's truth and the Holy Spirit, and so over time, as that individual continues to listen to the gospel but reject it, their heart is hardened, even worse than before, and probably their lives will slip back into old ways. That's what the problem is with the heart, that we reject God and, and turn to, at a deep level, to other idols, those things that we crave, popularity, success, influence, pleasure, security, those heart idols, those are the things that we go after. And we're not able to lay those things aside unless the Lord works in us, unless he softens us. That's true for someone who's, who's thinking about becoming a Christian. They can't just read the Bible verses, examine it for themselves objectively, and become a Christian. No, the Holy Spirit needs to work in them and soften their heart. And so we need to pray, Lord, work in our nation. Work in the hearts of our family. Work in, a friend, in our friends through your Holy Spirit that their hearts might be softened and that they might come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, why don't you pray as well? Say, Lord, I can't do it on my own. Will you work in me? Christians should pray just like that too. Even if we've got the Holy Spirit, even if we're filled up with God's goodness, we, we can't do it all on our own. We still have that sinful nature, and so we need to pray, Lord, help me. Help me as I try to fight against sin. I, I can't do it. You've got to help me. Thomas Chalmers was an 18th century Scottish theologian and a very famous preacher, and he, he preached a very famous sermon 
which is called the expulsive power of a new attraction. The expulsive power of a new attraction. What he means is that as we've got a, a new attraction or a new affection, is the word he used, this new affection, this new love for Jesus Christ, well, that, that expels all of that sin and darkness. We've got to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus. That's why time and again in the New Testament it says, fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that means with the eyes of our heart, as we focus on the Lord Jesus and his love for us, that on the cross, even though we were against him, even though we were rebels, that he died for us. As we focus on the cross and as we focus on the resurrection, that he was a man of power, that he destroyed the power of sin, that he paid for our sins, and then he gives us the gift of eternal life. His resurrection is proof of that. It's as we fix our eyes and our hearts on him, that new affection starts to cast out the old darkness. The problem is in our hearts, defective hearts. We need God's help. Defective hearts, we need God's help, but also we need to take practical steps. We need to obey. And that's the thing that we see last of all an obedient or transformed community, transformed community. So Jesus is teaching, and some, some people come up to him, and they say, well, your mother and, and your brothers, they're outside, they want to see you. And Jesus says something which is rather surprising. He says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He's saying here that there's a new allegiance. He's not saying that we shouldn't care for our family. We know that he teaches that we should do that. And we remember him on the cross when he was dying. His mother was there, and he wanted her to be cared for, and he asked his disciple John to do that. We should care for family. But there's a new allegiance, a new spiritual allegiance that trumps our biological family. It's our spiritual family. Now, I remember a, a friend of ours who's a Christian clocking this for the first time. This is at our, our previous church. This is a lovely girl called Rebecca, and she was a great Christian leader. We were in a leaders' meeting, and we were, just, we were studying a similar passage in Luke, and she put her hand up, and she said, so is this saying that our biological family is at the same level as God's family? You could see that she was slightly surprised at this. And I said, no, 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 the Lord's family. This family, the spiritual family, by far and away is greater than anything else in this world and, and than over our biological family. And the shock on her face was visible. There's a new allegiance here to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, I think, I think it's interesting the way that Jesus describes this transformed community. You see, he doesn't say community that comes together to sing. He doesn't say a community that comes to listen doesn't say a community that sticks around for tea and coffee afterwards and chat, or a community that meets during the week to share their lives and to look at the Bible. Now, all of those things are, are excellent. I, I know that you do those things here at Resurrection. But what's the way that he describes this new community? It says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. It's a community of obedience. And Jesus, he just keeps on coming back to this again and again and again. Remember back earlier in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. At the, the end of this magisterial sermon, the way that he finishes in, in his conclusion is to say, 
You, you've got to listen to me and put my words into practice. The community of obedience. And this isn't saying that we're saved by the, the things that we do. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor is this saying that Christians are perfect people. I think we all know that that's the case. You walk to church, you realize it's not a museum for the finished article. It's, it's more, as they say, like a hospital for people who, who realize that they need help. It, it's not saying that we're saved through our works or that we're the finished article. But it is saying that Christian community is transformed and that it's, it's marked by obedience. How do you know them? You know them through their fruit. And, and this goes hand in hand with this need for a transformed heart. It's also this need for an obedient life. These two things go hand in hand. You see, if we just focus on the practical things, the things that we need to do, we end up with a list of do's and don'ts. That's legalism. But if we just overemphasize God's grace and God's love, that can lead to license. We say, well, God loves me, and God's grace means that I'm forgiven. We need both of those things. Picture it like a mountain. We want to be at the top. On, on the one side is the danger of legalism. On the other side is the danger of, of license. We don't want to fall into those traps. We want to combine them together. God's grace working in us through his spirit, but also us fighting against sin practically. And that's the real emphasis of this passage as it finishes. We've seen that by nature we're rebellious. We've seen that our hearts need the Holy Spirit. But the question as we finish is, so what are we going to do about it? Are we people who put Jesus' words into practice? Are we people who do the will of the Heavenly Father? What might that look for us practically? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Will you acknowledge that, that deep down you suppress the truth? And, and will you see the urgency of turning to the Lord Jesus Christ? The people of Nineveh, they had one last chance as Jonah came to them. Eventually, all of us have one last chance. Maybe you're here and you are, on the outside, a Christian. You look like a Christian, but on the inside, there's issues. You're listening to the words of Jesus. Maybe you're not accepting certain key truths, things like the authority of, of Scripture. We need to accept those things. Will you reevaluate the evidence? Or maybe, in your heart, you know that you've never done business with you get down on your knees and say, Lord Jesus, I'm rebellious. Work in me. Help me. Or perhaps you hear, you are a Christian. You do love the Lord. You do have the Holy Spirit in you. But, but all of us have areas of our lives where there's disobedience. But we're keeping the Lord at, at arm's length. Well, what might it look like for you to take that first practical step? probably know what that thing is, but what does it look like to take the first practical step? Maybe it's starting to do something, like reading the Bible day by day, or starting to really pray. Or maybe it's stopping doing something. Maybe you know exactly what that thing is that you need to stop doing. What's the first step? Well, we see here that this is a transformed community, an obedient community, and so we help each other. Maybe it's meeting up with someone who's a Christian, a friend, and opening up and being honest with them in the ways that you're struggling. And they can help you, and they can pray for you. Well, we, we need to be 
a community that, that's full of God's grace as he works in us, but also full of obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know just what we're like. We're so rebellious in our hearts that when you speak tenderly to us, we just want to suppress that and turn away. Thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you renew us and you transform us. But help us, we pray, day by day, to take those active steps to fight against sin, the world, and the devil. And show us, we pray this week, what that first step might be. Give us the courage to put that into practice. We ask in your name. Amen. Feel free to continue to submit questions. I'll invite Al up. And uh, we have two that have come in. We'll spend about five minutes on Q&A. So we still have time to get a question in. Two have come in. Uh, who is the Queen of the South, Al? Yes, the good question. The Queen of the South is the Queen of Sheba. And you may remember Solomon. Solomon was, in some ways, the epitome of the splendor of Israel. He was the son of David. David was the one who established the kingdom. He was a fighter. And Solomon was a wise man, and he was a builder. And he built the temple. He built up the nation. And so Israel really flowered under him. And so everyone heard about Israel, and everyone heard about Solomon because of his wisdom. She, uh, Jerusalem was kind of the, the jewel of that area at that stage. And the, the Queen of Sheba, probably in, in, in Yemen today, she heard as, as well, and she traveled all the way to listen to Solomon. And this is recorded in the Old Testament. Thank you. Would you agree that Jesus appears a bit cold-hearted toward his earthly family? And if you do, or if you don't, how do we make our church inclusive and welcoming to all? So is Jesus cold-hearted? And if so, how we should be? How can we be welcoming and inclusive if that's how Jesus is? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. I think sometimes Jesus puts things quite firmly in order to help people with clarity. So that, I think that's what he's doing at the end of that. He wants people to be clear. So he says some things quite firmly so that people can be clear. And that's what he's doing here. He says, my family is not my biological family. My, my family is my spiritual family. That just helps everyone in the room to see, oh, okay, it's his spiritual family that's really important. It's not that he doesn't love his biological family. So on the cross, again, we see the way that he very tenderly cares for Mary. The rest of his family, his brothers, they mostly become Christians. Right the way through the Bible, there's a lot of teaching about how it's our responsibility to look after those who are under our care. That is people who we married to, our children, but also those who, we're, who, who we employ. So it's very important that we, we love our family, love the community, that kind of thing. So the second part of the question was... Um, how do we make our church inclusive and welcoming to all? Yeah, that's a great question. And don't we see Jesus do that? He doesn't just hang out with the people who he likes or the, the people who are like him. No, he goes to hang out with the people who are on the margins of society, the poor people but also the, the people who are regarded as wicked people, like the tax collector. Jesus goes and spends time with them. They're the, they're the sort of religious outcasts. Nobody wants to spend time with them. So I think Jesus, the Lord Jesus is a good model for that. And we should be just like that too. I think that's convicting for me. How do I reach out to that person who, who's not like me or that person who may be quite critical of me or religion? 
So I, th I think, how do we make people feel welcome practically when they walk in the door? You know, talking to people is, uh, is a good thing to do. So when we see someone who we don't know, it's nice to just go over and say, hi there, I've, uh, I want to introduce myself. Have you been here for long? They might say, oh no, this is my first time here. Isn't that nice? Well, the church I'm from, St. Andrews, is actually a lot harder to do that. But I think in a community like this, you can sometimes spot who's new. So why not go over and talk to them? And then I think hanging out at the end is a really good thing to do. It's possible to think, oh, I've got to go. I've got Sunday lunch on. We've got 10 other things to do, my next appointment. Sometimes we need to make a beeline for the door. But I think the default should be, let's hang out. We're, we're that spiritual community. We're, we're the people of God. And you don't have to stick around for half an hour. Even 10 minutes having a cup of coffee goes a long way. And that just helps us to connect and draw in newcomers. Newcomers, they think, well, tell me more about, tell me more about resurrection, especially if they're thinking about making this their spiritual home. They're trying to do their due diligence. So they want to speak to people. So why not just hang out at the end, speak to them, but also speak to other brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Really helpful. And I think that analogy of um, family that Jesus uses mm. is quite helpful. We, as families, we're used to inviting, or maybe we, we could be more used to it, but we're used to inviting people into the family home mm. and understanding that doesn't necessarily make them family, but they're made welcome by the family in the home. And then as Christians, we have the, the privilege of being able to say, will you join our mm. family? And, and so it's not, um, you don't have to be part of the family to come, mm. but you are welcome to be part of the family yeah. by Jesus, which is yeah. such a good message. Uh, last question. I know Christians who think they don't need a church family. Uh, they um, can just be a Christian on their own. What would you say to them? Well, you know, in a sense, you can be a Christian on your own without interacting with community. We, we often turn to the, you know, the thief on the cross. He's sort of the exception to all these things. He didn't go to church, but he was saved, so I can be just like that. I don't need to go to church, and, and I'm saved. But I, I think that is a, a misconception about what a Christian is. A, a Christian isn't an island. A Christian is, is as we've just been saying, is a part of a, of a family. That's what... God is doing. He's not raising up individual islands. He's raising up a, a, a group of people. And that's what it means to be a, a person, is, is community. We're not just all on our own. So I think it, that, uh, that attitude misunderstands what God is doing. It misunderstands what a person is. And so, so why, why wouldn't we? And I think it also misunderstands how we, how we need other people's help. You know, the, the story is told of, um, I can't remember where it's said ex exactly. Maybe it's up in the, the north, northern part of, of England or, or Scotland where everyone was a sort of a gruff individualist. And the minister there had noticed that someone had stopped coming to church. And so we noticed they didn't come for a while. Eventually, when they knocked on this man's door, being a gruff individualist, this man didn't have very much to say. So they just sat by the fireplace there where coals were, were burning red hot. And... The minister reached over, picked up a, a pair of tongs, and took out a, a single piece of, of coal. And that stood on the, on the stone, or that lay on the stone for a while, and eventually it stopped burning red hot, but started to go black. And then he picked it up, and he, he put it back in, and it started to burn red hot again. That was enough for them, and he came to church the next week. And I, I think 
you know, we, we need to be in community. And if you want to be going for it in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to be fighting against sin, then we need each other. And I think COVID has shown that really obviously. I even felt, if I work for a church, I felt myself, I, I don't want to say going off the boil a bit, but I just felt my keenness drop over these last few months. And then first Sunday back, I'm like, wow, here the people are. These are my people. These are the people of God. And I just felt my, my spiritual temperature warm up. So being in church is, is just so important. Amen. Thank you very much, Al. Thanks. And we'll come to our final songs now.